Hello, welcome to Pop-Up Submissions Live. Today's theme is fantasy. It's a mega genre, all right? Think about epic fantasy, heroic fantasy, sword and sorcery, sword and sandal, steampunk, diesel punk, urban fantasy, high fantasy, low fantasy, dark fantasy, grim dark fantasy, historical fantasy, science fantasy, paranormal fantasy. Oh, I think I'm going to stop now, or oh, we won't have time for any submissions. Here to help me today, in addition to the ineffable genius room, is... Yeah, the altogether fantastic Chris Jones. Yes, and the entirely fabulous Bev Dalton. Bev, of course, is one of our intrepid narrators, the voice behind a great many wonderful readings, some of which you're going to hear today. And now you can actually see her here live in the flesh. Here we go. Submission number one. We're fast today. This is The Shadow of Eons. It's fantasy. I told you it was. And it's from Jonathan Kirby. Hello, Jonathan. Hopefully you're with us live on YouTube. If you are, make yourself known. Say hello. This is Jonathan's blurb. Jonas Silver is a desperate man, banished from society and surviving on rats and whatever else he can find in the bitterly cold northern wilderness, when he comes across an ancient cursed sword. As he has nothing to lose, he takes it for his own and finds it imbues him with the strength of many men. His, he heads south to wreak vengeance, revenge, sorry, to wreak revenge upon his enemies, but on his way starts experiencing random bursts of anger. Will the man ultimately stay sane enough to overturn his fate and redeem his family? I wonder. Uh, short and sweet about Jonathan, I attended the University of Massachusetts, majoring in computer science. And I'm now a software engineer. I've been writing for over 10 years. Okay, we're going to give you the very best possible reading with this amazing delivery from Jeff. The Shadow of Eons by Jonathan, read by Emily. The dusky sword glittered in the moonlight, shining from the crevice above. Rubies, opals, sapphires and diamonds adorned its pommel, an elegant writing curved on its spine. It had lain untouched for centuries while wars had been fought, countries had been conquered and kings had been slain. The light was distorted on the little cracks that were dispersed on the long blade, and this light spilled onto the stones surrounding it in shattered formations, without pattern or order. It was a light that illuminated the passions of fools, because only fools entered haunted chasms which had been said to house haunted objects such as this relic. Fools with a death wish, People with nothing to lose other than their own mortality and nothing to gain other than worthless wealth which was then spent on worthless things. The man bent over this thing stood in position for boundless moments, for what seemed like hours, studying the thing. The legend said that whomever touched it would instantly transform into a being both of willful anger and lusty greed and would wander the earth as a slave to it forever, obeying its whims like a servant controlled by a merciless master. But as the man had less than nothing to lose, and had been on the precipice of insanity and hopelessness for ages, he took the chance and lifted the blade. Jonas woke up. He peered at his surroundings, the rising sun shining over mountains through the windowpane opposite the bed, 
the nightstand with various books strewn about and with dust collecting on top of them like dew on grass, the thready carpeting which made the rest of the room look opulent by comparison. Gods knew what he was doing here and who had carried him to this place. The last thing he could remember was touching the sword and then the hazy remnants of memory containing the journey back through the mountains to civilization, starving along the way, hunting rabbits and voles and sometimes even crickets through the frozen forests of Yand without a fire, almost without hope of seeing another man again. But apparently, now, he had made it, although how he got to this point was mystery. One thing was for sure, though. He was hungry. He tiptoed to the door, pressed against it carefully with his fingertips, and opened it ever so slightly. The door was creakless, thank the gods double, and there didn't seem to be any voices conversing nearby, just the dim whistle of air common in the northern regions of Yand, the sound of the wind rustling through the trees and into the cracks of houses' walls like vagabonds roaming the streets and seeking a place to wait out the night. Of this Jonas was thankful, and he opened the door a little more and looked out. It was an upscale living space, couches laid down beside each wall, and low tables laden with fruit and bottles of wine. A fireplace burned in the corner, heat emanating from it palpably, so that Jonas's skin fairly burned in its presence. He had never felt a fire quite so hot, and there were strange-looking instruments, weird contraptions with balls which ran continuously through open tubes with no visible means of locomotion, an hourglass that was continuously turning itself over, huge volumes which lay open, containing pages with self-drawing diagrams. It was clear that this was the home of a wizard. Jonas felt a chill. Even though his body was burning hot, he would have to thread carefully here. Wizards were known for their evil deeds throughout all the lands, and he was sure that this one would be no exception. The door was still almost closed, and he felt it prudent to knock at the door. As he rapped on the wood three very careful times, he pondered that he was about to see his first wizard, since he was a boy, when he saw the Chancellor's wizard from atop his balcony in Carthay Castle, where he grew up. There was a rustling behind the doorway, and the door latch swivelled and opened. A small, wrinkled gnome stood there, green and miserable in its ugliness. It bowed, full of servile obsequiousness. Okay, and that uh, green wrinkled gnome was probably me, um, because as everyone has pointed out, I've an embarrassing start to the show, but there you go, it's live, whatever. Uh, yeah, as Andy says in the uh, genius room, uh, Jeff has never sounded so sexy. Sorry about that. Let's see what else the genius room is saying. Um, so uh, Barbara says, hi, Annie and mum. Hello, Annie's mum. <laughs> it's very good to have you there. Um, yeah. Rachel says, fantasy writer Nova Novik was a computer programmer before breaking in. Yeah, that's true. Actually, quite a strong um, uh, connection there, I think. Um, Barbara also notices, oh, Jeff has had a vocal makeover. My fault. Um not a dream beginnings, says Pamela Joe. I would rather felt that too. Formatting could do a bit of work, observes Barbara. A lot happening in the first few paragraphs, says Vicky. And James says, like the first sentence or two, maybe too much explaining then and no action. Barbara then starts to lose interest. Too many writerly words, says Pamela Joe. Though the concept is good... And there is a vice, I think, I think you mean a vice, or maybe a vice, who knows? Um, might be a story about blacksmiths. Um, blurb seems okay as a mini story. I like the blurb a bit more than the sample writing, actually. And Andy said, there is atmosphere here, but a bit too much description and telling for me. Let's ask Bev what her first reaction was. I wasn't massively keen on the title. Um, but I quite liked most of the writing. Mm. 
Okay. However, my heart did sink when I thought, oh gosh, we're, we're going into a dream sequence. I know, here. yes. But then it wasn't a dream, it was a memory. But then he said the first thing he remembered was, you know, the last thing he remembered was something, but then there were more memories after that. So I found myself getting quite confused. And then the door was maybe open a crack, but it was open enough for him to see everything. But then it wasn't open very much. And first he was hearing the wind. So I thought the door was opening into the outside, but mm. then it, it was actually opening into a room. So I, I, th I think there's something there, but I think it kind of got a little confused and a bit lost. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't totally hook me, I've got to say. But what did you think, Chris? Yeah, I, I thought the the blurb, uh, I think I felt like he, it's kind of like they buried the lead in the blurb. Like he waited till the end to tell me why the guy was so desperate. I want to know from the beginning what made him so desperate. Yes. Why, why is he out there by himself in the wilderness? Why is he desperate? And we don't find out to the end that his desperation comes from wanting to help his family. But that should be that should have been more forward, I thought. Because um, then it creates more of a sympathetic hero. Now I know why he wants vengeance. Now I know why he wants to get back in there and make something happen. Yes. Um, and why he had nothing to lose. And then I think within the story, uh, I felt like the story, it, it started, it was a very slow start. Um, mm -hmm. I like what RK Captain said in the genius room that it's kind of Conan meets Hulk. <laughs> that kind yeah. of premise, but it was I, a, I like that it idea, was a, it definitely. Yeah, yeah, I like that for sure. But it didn't, I didn't get I didn't get so much of that. But then kind of the other thing where it was obvious, a wizard's house. I, it wasn't obviously a wizard's house to me. It was just a house. Yeah. And uh, so I feel like more, more, uh, more show, less tell. Can't say you're wrong. I think you're right. Um, I haven't checked, actually. I should have done this before the show. You see, it's going to be one of those days, guys. I blame it on Bev. Um, Chris, are you, have you got the voting page up there? I am pulling up now. I did the... Oh, uh, fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, That's yeah. brilliant. Okay, do, uh, do it when you can do it. Let's just okay. come back to the genius room. And there's a lot of discussion about sesquipedalian which I'm not going to get into. Uh, <laughs> okay, so it's like YouTube. Yes, please do. Absolutely. I like that YouTube. Please press that like button now. You know where it is. Um, okay, so let's just see if the votes have come through from Chris. Yes, they have. That's great, which means we've got an overall number so far for you, Jonathan. You got a 52. Uh, well above average. Um, good start to the show. Let's see what's next. Someone's got to say it. A lot of writing courses and seminars out there are horrifically overpriced. Litopia's writing seminars deliver practical knowledge you can use at an unbeatable price. Learning the tricks of the trade shouldn't cost a fortune. Litopia's writing seminars give you what you need to know without fleecing you. Yeah, of course, if you're a full member of Latopia, they're free, guys. Free, as in beer, as in seminars. Um, now, I just want to say before we go to our next submission, um, Chris Chris very, very kindly stepped in, actually, because we had a, a last-minute cancellation. Really um, indebted to Chris for doing that. And he's also booked for a few more weeks' time, because we like Chris. Um, but he's a developmental editor, amongst many other talents he's got. He does developmental editing of manuscripts for authors. So that is an interesting subject. It's one of the most common questions that we get inside Latapia. Do I need to work with an external editor? What isn't a development editor? All those sorts of things. So if you've got questions like that, 
think about them now, save them up, and uh, probably after this next submission, we're going to go to Chris and we're going to ask him exactly uh, what a development letter does and how to work with one. So you've got questions, then is the time to, uh, to ask them. So here we go, submission number two of the day, Ghosts of the Living, Young Adult Fantasy by Richard. QR code there. You can zoom straight off on the interwebs to find whatever website Chris wants you to go to, um, that Richard wants you to go to. And this is Richard's blurb. Growing up in the highland village of Strontian. It's a real village, guys. Amazing place, actually. Highland village of Strontian. Connell carries two secrets. He's gay and he's a seer. As first love blossoms, Connell has ominous visions of Tamask. I think I probably murdered that. Sorry about that. Living ghosts. They ultimately reveal Strontian's dark past, a supernatural illness that's claimed the souls of generations of village children. The truth behind the disease lies in a fabled lost book about the other world and the mystical city. Can Connell and his lover track down the book before evil closes in? I like the, uh, the sound of this, actually. Um, Strontium, isn't it? Are you, think, are you thinking of Strontium? Yes, actually, Strontium was named after Strontium, the village there, where his first um, uh, mined, actually. The only place in the UK to have its, uh, its name um, associated with an element. Um, so this is about Richard. Based in Glasgow, I've spent the last 25 years at the BBC working as a serious producer, director, mainly in factual TV. I've written and produced an eclectic range of series, arts, history, science, and produced a couple of dramas, too. I recently went freelance to make less TV and write more. Ghosts of the Living is the end result. It combines two big interests of mine, queer literature and Scotland's rich historical and mythical past. Interesting combination. Now, I, 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 I don't know if I'm going to get this right or wrong. Or uh, Anyway, I think, I hope, this, this submission is actually going to be read by Emily. Ghosts of the Living by Richard Downs Read by Mel Chapter 1 Carrying the faint hint of autumn, a chill breeze sweeps down from the mountains and gusts around the bus shelter. Morning shift over. Everyone is huddled inside waiting for the hotel shuttle to take them home to Strontian. Standing apart from the others, Connell stares down apprehensively at the app. Not for the first time, either. Seventeen, legally old enough to have sex, but not old enough to sign up to a dating app. Idly, he scrolls through the others on offer, which cater for every conceivable taste. Romeo, Surge, Hornet, Scruff, Recon, Tinder, Hinge, Growl. The choice is overwhelming, but Connell wants this one. It's by far the most popular. He'd wait until his 18th, but the thing is, he's seen someone he fancies, but doesn't know where they live or how to find them. Maybe, just maybe, they'll have a profile. Turning his back, Connell shields his screen to make sure the others can't see. He needn't worry. They're engrossed in someone else's. Let me see. Oh, so adorable, crows Lucia, a pretty Italian girl and a new start like Connell. Oh my God, look at her little face. She's so like you. What's her name? Chrissy, replies Iona, who works behind the bar. She's such a cutie, and since Donalda moved back home, I see her every day. It's just a shame her dad's pissed off, poor lamb. Babies are boring. Take a look at this, ladies, butts in Callum, another waiter sharing a TikTok story. 
Not as boring as you, Lucia replies dismissively. Callum was once Connell's tormentor-in-chief. Since they left school, he's become a reformed character for reasons Connell's still trying to work out. There's a crunch of feet on the gravel, and a shadow appears at his shoulder. What are you looking at? asks Callum, peering at the screen. Going red, Connell hurriedly stuffs the phone into his pocket. Nothing, really. Just bored waiting. A horn toots heralding the shuttle's arrival. They join the queue. Don't know why you're looking at them apps when Lucia's made it pretty obvious. Connell sighs inwardly. Not again. He shrugs. New phone. Just seeing what's out there. Curious, that's all. Climbing aboard, Callum changes the subject. Up to much tonight? Not sure. Quiet one, probably. You? Callum spots his usual seat behind Liam, another server at the hotel. Sitting down, he pleads, It's Friday. Come along for a few bevies. Raising his voice to make sure everyone can hear. Lucia's coming. I know she's hoping you'll be there. Dunno, man. See how I feel later. He passes by Lucia, two seats behind. Raising her middle finger at the back of Callum's head, she mouths to Connell, ignore the prick, before returning to her conversation with Iona. As the shuttle drives off down the gravel track toward the main road, Connell heads to his favorite seat at the back and swings his bag into the rack above. He likes the journey home. Early shift over, he listens to music and gazes at the passing countryside. Visitors often tell him how lucky he is to live here. He supposes they're right, but then again he's not known anywhere else. His eye lands on one of the ads pasted above the windows, targeted at arriving hotel guests picked up from Fort William. Welcome to Arden Marken and Morvern, a breathtaking landscape filled with secretive hill locks, mist-shrouded mountains, white sandy beaches, and a mystical history that stretches back to the dawn of time. An amazing, life-changing adventure awaits. It might be breathtaking, and it is beautiful, but there's fuck all to do. A cage, a place to leave rather than stay. Until Connell has saved enough money, there's no flying it just now. Unfortunately, Callum is right about Lucia. She's had him in her sight since day one. He's fond of her too, but just not in that way. Okay, so I'm screwing up left, right and centre today. I'm so sorry. Oh dear, apologies all around. Sorry, Mel, that was a great reading and uh, I'm, done, I'm not going to try and attribute readings anymore. I'm just going to, you know, somebody, read by somebody really good next time, actually, because I'm obviously getting it all wrong. Um, but yeah, thank you, Mel. I think that's the second or third one you've done and you're, you're brilliant. Great having you on the team. Let's go straight to Chris for first reactions. Uh, I thought the blurb had a lot going on. Um, mm. it, it, seemed, it seemed a little busy for me. Because you have a, you have, uh, you have, a, you, we're typing a character, we're talking about a character, we're talking about kind of a conflict with him and his sexuality. Then we get into like him being a seer, him being like going on this adventure. So it was, it was a lot to unpack for me. It's kind of busy. yes, yes. Um, and and also I feel like you know if you're go if we're if we're going to you know embed a character like kind of a character's position within a story, you got to fulfill that somehow, some way, and not be something trendy, but make sure that you that, that there's a purpose for that. So hopefully the book will definitely fulfill that. Yes, yes, yeah. But uh, let's um, just, yeah. So I, I, I'm very curious to know what you think about the commercial potential of this because one or two people in the chat room have been enthusiasm, uh, enthusiasm, enthusing. Yeah. So I like, I like the writing. I like the writing. I yeah, I like the, the writing. The writing was yeah. engaging. The only yeah. thing, the only thing that I thought there was a disconnect. There was a disconnect between the bus stop and then suddenly we're inside of a cafe. Then we're back at a bus stop. So I wasn't sure if there was a, like I'm not sure where that was, but I felt like I got lost somewhere. Yeah. But apart from yeah. that, I thought the writing was good. I thought the writing kind of carried me from place to place pretty well. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Let's see what the genius room are saying. And after Brian Breezy start, says Johnny, too much telling. Uh, I think that was kind of what Chris is saying too, actually. Uh, Annie pointedly says, cutting Annie. Emily's accent seems to have changed. Yes, shame on me. Um, waiting for the fantasy to kick in. Annie says, was that expecting the contemporary setting? Maybe it should be urban fantasy if it's seven our world. And actually, and Annie then goes on to say, or is this going to be portal fantasy? Oh, I think the answer is yes to that. Mel, our narrator, says, I like the voice that brought me right into the scene with the characters. Um, Would have been nice to have a hint of the fantasy to come. I agree, yeah. And um, one or two people have been sort of self-questioning about the present tense. Um, RK likes the present tense. Um, Dialogue seems to be the real start of the story. I thought so too, actually. like that nice, good bantery sort of stuff, actually. I think, you know, that that, that worked for me. Not sure this starts in the right place, says James. Uh, Last paragraph was almost a blurb in itself, says Lex. And Annie, Josh's verdict, blurb better than the story. Yes. Um, Pete, for the long odds, this next entry read by Orson Welles. I will try and remember that. Thank you very much. Lex, bev your comments, please. I really like the title. And I agree with Chris. The, the blurb was just too... It told too much of the story for me. Mm. Uh, um, it just gave too much away. So that then when we're just sitting at a bus stop, it, it felt a little bit of a letdown to, to kick into the story. Okay. Then I, I found myself really getting into it. I liked the way he introduced the age, legally old enough mm. to have sex, but not old enough to to go on a dating app. Yes. I liked I liked little teasers like Cal- Callum was the school bully, but he isn't anymore. He's reformed, and but he yes. doesn't tell us why. Yeah, yeah, so I like that some, too. I know that. Yeah, there were some lovely, lovely bits, but it did come across as this is someone who writes for TV because it. It set the scene the way it would go in a movie. I felt this was like the first three or four seconds, maybe not very long of a movie, but in a book, it took a long. It took longer to read Mm. than it would to see it. Mm. And so, what I wanted was um, an overlay of the magic and the mystery that was going to start creeping in. And I would read on because Mm. I liked the writing, Mm. but I wouldn't read on beyond the first chapter unless I was really hit up with, with some magic and some, you know, something to pull me towards what was promised on the back. Yes. Yes. Well, fantastic. Two great panellists today, guys. I need to hardly add anything. I thought banter was very good. I just want to get more into Connell's head a little bit, actually, um, Richard. But I think that's a very astute observation of Babs, actually, about... um now the the visual aspect versus the the words. I just want to bite. I just what I wrote down here was biters. Biters just need need to be hooked out a little bit more actually. But it, it feels pretty commercial um, from my point of view. I, I gave you good commercial marks on that. So let's look at the numbers. You got sixty four. Soaring into the lead, Richard. You could be the show uh, winner, which of course is the first show of the month means monthly winner so far. You could well be. Um, let's see how those numbers spread out. Now I want to have a word with um, Chris and see if 
we've got any questions, please, in the Genius Room, or indeed on YouTube. If you're on YouTube now and you want to know um, how to work with an editor, if you're, you know, you're working on your manuscript, you think, do I need an editor? Should I be working with an editor before I send it to an agent, before I try and get it uh, over to a publisher or something like that? Ask away. Now is your time to ask some questions. I want to ask you, please, Chris, what exactly, and this is, oh, this is honestly, I don't really know, what is a developmental editor? So basically what a developmental editor does is sits down with an author once the author has started to craft their manuscript, and we start looking for, looking for areas where the, st the story needs to have more strength, where, okay. where the author hasn't told them that. Up with us, and we, try to, we try to basically weave a cohesive story. So sometimes an author will, will build a story, but there's some missing. And it's like, so I'll go back in and say, look, I'd uh, love to hear more about this, less about that. And uh, let, let's see if we can tone, it, tone this down, build this up. And so we spend a lot of time doing in non-fiction with non-fiction you want to tell everything and everything that need to always be told yes yes and do you do you prefer working with fiction or non-fiction 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 yeah uh and that would uh, yeah, and you sorry go on so, yeah, i have a journalism background so that's kind of yeah yeah the storytelling side of that works really well with non-fiction yeah. So uh, back in the day, um, publishers uh, would have um, people who you know would work with with editors, basically who would work with um, aspiring authors if they thought something interesting. Um, also, agents would be prepared to spend a lot of time, you know, bringing on talent and so on. Seems to be less and less the case now, especially since you've got you know multiple routes to market. You've got self-publishing as well. That's just as valid now as traditional publishing so do you do you foresee more and more people will be coming to people like you developmental editors for early stage assistance it depends it really depends like i think people people kind of always mix up editing and proofreading and so they go they want to go straight to the proofreader as opposed to going to the editor first yeah and going to the proofreader at the very end so uh if we can convince people to do that first because i think the best thing you can do for your stories is make sure it reads well from beginning to end, make sure everything's cohesive, the chapters are connected well, and that the concepts are uh, conveyed well from chapter to chapter so that you're always holding the attention of your reader till the very end. Yes. And what what trends are you seeing at the moment in terms of, let's say, nonfiction, which is the area you like? Are there any new areas surfacing? Do you, do you think your sort of market knowledge, do you, do, you, do you see anything that people ought to be you know, more aware of and writing to a market that's starting to develop? Well, I think right now people are people are in the per, like more in the personal development side still. They're still talking about their health and wellness. So they're still talking about success. They're still talking yeah, yeah. about um, leadership. Yeah. So those are those are always, those are always going to be key. Those are always going to work yeah. for people. If you can yeah. talk about pain, success, health, yeah. you pretty much are in there. Uh, great uh, question from YouTube. What's the number one issue you see with most manuscripts? Lack of lack of planning. I think a lot of authors go right to the page as opposed to starting with a synopsis. Just, look, yes. just write, a, write a complete synopsis as if you were going to send it to an agent right away. So write a full synopsis, break down your chapters, what's inside them. A lot of people don't do that. You just start writing, and then you have to go back in and figure out oh. where the mistakes are. I know. I know. I couldn't Number agree more. Number one thing. Absolutely. A lot of painters, not a lot of plotters. Yeah. Yes. Plotting, yes. Uh, plotting significant. Yeah, well, people don't want to because they, they think they can just, you know, roll their... Everyone can write, can't they? They just roll their sleeves up and they, they get stuck in and 50,000 words later, 100,000 words later, they go, oh, I'm not sure about this. And, of course, at that point, it's so hard to sort of to turn it around, isn't it, actually? Because you've got a lot of words to deal it with. It is. There. 
It is because you're going you're going from trying to work with someone's uh, synopsis and making sure the story and the synopsis align to yeah. dealing with someone's stream of consciousness. Now I'm now I'm going through exactly. the stream of consciousness trying to figure exactly. out where. Where we got where we got to divide things at? I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. More questions. More questions for Chris, please. I've just find out why is it? I mean, I've I've had this discussion so many times. I'm so pleased you said that, actually, Chris. Why is it that that so many aspiring writers do that? They 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 probably know better, but they still they think I don't need to do that. Uh, Stephen King. Yeah, Stephen King. He never plans anything. Yeah, but he was on drugs. He doesn't remember writing most of the books he wrote. So. So, well, I mean, simply put, simply put, everybody hates the process. So that's the yes. that's the honest answer. People don't like the process; they want the results. I want to get yeah. my movie on the bookshelf, but I don't want the work that goes into it most of the time. Yeah, just want yeah. to get it over with because it's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's yeah, absolutely, it's very true. Uh, more questions, please, to Chris. Meanwhile, we'll look at submission number three. When you join our weekly huddle, certain things happen. No, not that. Bring your writing, your book titles, your blurbs, anything really, for expert and sympathetic input. In confidence. Other websites charge a fortune for this kind of thing, and Latopia, the oldest community for writers on the net, is included in your modest subscription. Latopia, we're here for you. And we're here for... <laughs> Submission number three, read by somebody good. <laughs> No. This is from Rafsa. Hello, Rafsa. Um, got a QR code there too, so follow that if you'd like to. It's called Hannah's Magical Hijab Fantasy. I think it's for the youngsters, definitely is. And this is Rafsa's blurb. Hannah, a 10 year old girl, spends eight years of her life in a small village far from her home, Shunapur Castle. She grows up being told by her brother and uncle that her parents died from an accident. One day, her brother Hamza, who's 17 years old, gifts her with a magical hijab, which Hannah wears to her non-uniform day in school. When Hannah storms out of school after a student makes a sarcastic remark about her parents, her brother decides to tell her the truth. The truth that her parents are... <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't think you intended to leave that blank. What happens is you've got 500 characters on the uh, submission uh, form on the, on the website. and uh, But that's a total cliffhanger, isn't it, actually? We don't know. We don't know what they are. But maybe we'll find out. I don't think we're going to find out in the first 700 words, either. Uh, let me tell you about Rafsa. I'm a British-born Bangladeshi, being someone who wears the hijab and recognising... There are not many fantasy heroes who wear the hijab. This led me to write Hannah's Magical Hijab, which includes aspects of my culture within the story. I grew up in Birmingham and graduated in BSc Psychology in Coventry University. Um, I completed a PGCE, I don't know what that is, but it sounds impressive, in Birmingham City University. I've been teaching secondary school and sixth form students for the past eight years, teaching psychology and health and social care. And I can totally assure you, Rafsa, that whoever's going to read this is going to do it really well. <laughs> Hannah's Magical Hijab by Rafsa Read by Hannah Where is the hijab? The evil witch shouted. Give it right now! The king and queen were holding each other close. No, said King Sultan. Don't tell her, said Queen Leba. The witch stood there 
with her hands in the air, ready to cast a curse. A thunderstorm started in Shunapur as the rain dropped viciously onto the castle and Shunapur. The villagers ran for cover in the safety of their huts. Tell me where the hijab is or I'll destroy your belongings, she demanded. No, shouted Queen Leba. The witch's eyes became black with fury. The king and queen's household belongings raised in the air, mirroring the motion of the witch's arms. As she clenched her fists, the couple ducked in the castle bedroom as their clothes made of pure silk, their hand-carved wooden bed, and their precious gold jewellery shattered and fell to the ground. Give it! Give it right now! she shrieked. The king and queen ignored her. King Sultan looked into the eyes of his wife. They will save us. She will save us, he said. The wife shook her head in agreement, with tears in her eyes. The witch lifted her arms again and her long black velvet dress became long tentacles. They squirmed all throughout the room. A long tentacle leaped towards the king and queen's face and hissed, which made them both scream. The witch cackled. <laughs> well, are you going to give it? She asked with a wicked smile on her face. The royal couple remained silent, closing their eyes to shut out the horrible sight in front of them. Stop, she said. The tentacles dropped to the ground. She rubbed her hairy chin, thinking about how she could make them suffer. This is rubbish. If you won't give it to me, then I shall simply capture your own people. <laughs> the witch cackled, knowing deep down that they were too loyal to the magical hijab. I shall cast an almighty curse, a curse on the whole of Shunapur she said, whilst looking outside the room window with a smirk on her face. Don't you dare, shouted King Sultan. The witch turned around. I shall dare. She smiled with her rotten black teeth. Shunapur, it means golden town, right? I will show you how your kingdom will become dark and miserable. <laughs> she laughed for a split second then opened her eyes wide whilst her dressed tentacles wrapped themselves around the king and queen and squeezed them tight. The awful smell of the tentacles made Queen Labour hold her breath. The tentacles snagged the king and queen, bringing them close to the witch. She placed king and queen, each on either side of her. Ah, the evil witch said, while sniffing the queen's neck. I know it's in this kingdom somewhere. She whispered in the queen's ear, thinking she had outsmarted them. The witch walked outside, looking at all the Shunapur huts. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Come out, come out, I know you are not far, she smirked. The villagers came out of their huts in fear. In front of them stood the witch with the king and queen, tangled in her dressed tentacles either side of her. A king and queen here on my left and right, they truly love losing a fight. I want the magical hijab, but they don't tell, so I shall cast an evil spell. <laughs> no, Avilia, please don't do this, cried a villager, using the infamous witch's name. No, no, she screamed. The villager instantly went quiet.
The witch looked at the king and queen, again hoping that seeing the sadness and fear of the people of Shinapur would persuade them to give in. Well, where's the hijab? she asked in a low tone. They both stayed quiet, suffering in pain facing their people. Her eyes became black again. Righty-ho, I shall cast a curse, she said in a squeaky voice. Shunapur village standing tall, you will have your greatest fall. Be gone with the arms, legs and eyes, for you shall become my hunters in disguise. So, yes, and um, that was quite Hannah. <laughs> I'm the last to know, really, aren't I? Uh, so let's see what these my uh, sheets get printed out uh, several days before the rest of the data gets entered. So that's my excuse. And wasn't that fantastic cackling, wasn't it? I mean, Hannah just bought a cackle. I love cackling. That's uh, the best. I think there's some uh, neat comments about that in the genius room. Yeah, but actually. Uh, Mel, Mel hit on the nail, uh, uh, hit the nail on the head for me when she said, a bit lost, is this a prologue? I think it is this sort of prologue, actually, but let's, we'll find out in a minute. Um, destroy your belongings, uh, says Annie, doesn't seem like a sufficient threat. Wouldn't she threaten to kill them? Yeah. No, several nice remarks about Hannah's witchy tone, Johnny. I can practically see the cauldron and pointy hat. Guess right in the action, says James. Nice hook. Um, Vicky says, perhaps dived in uh, too much too early. And Andy says, we're certainly in the middle of the action, but almost like we've missed something going in. And, okay, Rachel says, awesome reading again. Yes, and wouldn't it be nice if Peter got the names right? What did you think? Bev. Well, I thought I want Hannah to read me a bedtime story every yes, night. Yes, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, brilliant. I, I really like the title. I can see that on a shelf with a really beautiful sort of, you know, bright cover. Um, and I kind of liked some of the blurb, but it was just too wordy. Mm. Uh, um, and I loved the dialogue i loved the the childishness of give it here give it right now oh right yeah. you know yeah. i mean the the way they spoke was like small children there was that lovely sort of remove into a child's world just by the dialogue but outside of that i'm i'm not so keen i found the the storytelling seemed very young for the age that it was going for it seemed quite repetitive and some things were over explained and as they said in the the genius room it's like hang on we we seem to have jumped into something with no no idea why we're there and why this is happening mm. and and i sort of imagined someone sitting with a group of kids around making all the voices and this that and the other but I, I, you need a bit more lead up than that to to get what's going yeah, on. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question because I see that Annie has said, and Annie is no mean slush in these matters. Um, I think this kind of prologue works. All right, so I'd like to know why you think that. Because uh, from my point of view, so you know, you're talking about things that are a bit hackneyed, actually. And my own instinct would have been right or wrong to maybe start in the real world, um, give us a bit of um, you know solid sort of gritty reality and then make that transition rather than jump in with fairy tale stuff. But I don't know. What did you think there, Chris? 
Yeah, I thought the uh, I like the title. I thought the title was fantastic. Mm. Uh, like like Bev, it's one of those stories you can see on the shelf of a, uh, a bookstore. So I you love totally the title. Um, yeah, yeah. The blurb. Uh, what I thought about the blurb was that I was hoping for some sort of like accidental like power discharge when she got angry at school. Yes. To to justify the hijab. Because she got this magical job on it's like she's going to school has no idea what it does and then she storms out of the classroom after being insults i thought like there'd be some sort of like just magical discharge just like what just happened you know that's what yeah. i was thinking was gonna yeah. happen yeah yeah um brilliant and then yeah yeah but i just like the unintentional cliffhanger i thought that was good despite it being unintentional <laughs> end of the story uh, I felt like the witch was the witch felt more like a, an armed robbery to me as opposed to a magical witch yes. threatening to take over an entire realm. <laughs> That's how they yeah, operate I these days. Like, I, I, I felt yeah, I felt like the witch made too many threats. When you're that powerful of a witch, just you you make one threat, and if it doesn't work, then off you go. That's and I right. felt like she made so many threats, and the king and queen were like still like nonplussed. Like, okay, yeah, keep threatening. We'll sit here and debate with you all day long. And uh, so I thought that was uh, that was something that should be fixed. Is just cut down the number of threats and then get this cut yeah. and figure out what the witch wants but I, I, I like I think starting in the real world would have been a lot better than kind of flashing back to this would have been nice I want to start with Hannah and just figure out mm. like what her deal is and then kind of go back to this and like in little like flashbacks that's my feeling too actually but I think Annie is depending on her position she's saying I think it works when compared to other types of prologues it's not info dump or some internal monologue yeah that's right it's relevant to the story it is it is but I agree with what the genie I pointed out good yes well that's always safe to agree with the genius dream actually um, right so have we got numbers oh uh, 015388 authors should check out John Belair's if they hadn't haven't already similar territory and will hopefully provide inspiration I've never heard of John Belair's, but I'm going to Google him after the show. Um, let's look. You got the numbers there, Bev? Yeah, you got your numbers. Good. We got the numbers from Chris. Fantastic. You do like that title, actually, don't you? Which means you got a 61, Rev, sir. Not bad. Not quite in the lead, I don't think, but not at all bad. Let's see how the numbers look. Yep. That's pretty clear. Richard is currently leading with Ghosts in the Living. Your second, Rafsa, with the Hannah's Magical Hijab. Currently your third, Yonatan, with Shadow Beyond. So we have two more submissions, and I think it's all to play for. Here we go. Submission number four of the day. Immortality, Fire and Ice. More fantasy from Katharina Freeze. This is Katharina's blurb. For thousands of years, the Olympians have ruled Greece. But one day, young Lycos has a horrible dream of a bloody battlefield. Frightened, he and his best friend Hector try to solve the mystery, discovering about another race of gods, the Aesir. They fight to make peace, but when push comes to shove, blood is spilt and battle begins. Can Lycos, Hector, and their new friends, Lyf and Lyfthrasil, stop the carnage and save the gods? Or will our own feud and fury tear apart immortals and mortals alike? Rick Jordan's now. Okay, let. Immortality, Fire and Ice by Katerina Freysa Read by John Chapter 1 
A Horizon of Darkness A flash of light illuminated the otherwise darkened plains. Rain hammered onto the ground and a ferocious wind bellowed. Thunder shook the earth and another flash of lightning lit up an unimaginably devastating scene. Corpses littered the ground, thousands of them stacked high. They were bathed in a pool of blood, hard, dried blood, horrible to look at. Nobody would expect a single living soul to be near these plains of death. But there was one person treading. Not the blood-soaked ground, but the air above the gruesome corpses. It was a boy of barely thirteen years. He was tall, lean and lithe. Hard muscles made up his body and he moved with unparalleled grace and swiftness. His blonde hair almost touched his shoulders and his eyes were blue fire. He was dressed only in a white Greek chiton, a simple robe leaving most of his tanned arms and shins bare. He wore hard, worn leather sandals and a thin rope tied around his waist served as a belt. From this belt hung a pouch with coins, another with some basic herbs and most importantly, a plain white sheath containing a long sword. The disturbing thing about this boy was that he had no real name. He was called Lycos by most. Wolf. There was something definitely wolvish about him, that was true. His alertness and tension, the pose of a hunter, and the way his eyes scanned the plains was most wolf-like as well. Another clap of thunder shook the ground underneath Lycos' feet, and he jumped, startled. Fear gnawed at his insides and he turned to look at the blackened skies. Zeus! he yelled. Even his voice held something of a wolf's howl, but it was almost more the cry of a scared pup than the defiant challenge of a grown wolf. What have you done? Why am I here? This wasn't Zeus's doing, a soft voice whispered in his mind. This is the work of something far greater than Zeus. It is the work of fate itself. Who are you? Lycos whispered, trying to fight down the gripping wave of fear in him. What do you want? I want to warn you, wolf boy, of days to come. Lycos cast about himself, but he couldn't see the invisible speaker whispering into his ear. The wolf and viper's battle calls. The golden warrior's power falls. Two races well beyond their date shall bend at last to wills of fate. A final rise of doom decide. The vital word of one does hide. What? For a moment, Lycos was stupefied. He couldn't even register that the invisible person had spoken to him. A blaze of fire burned in his mind, appearing out of nowhere. The words repeated themselves in his head over and over and over again, and each time he got the feeling something was tracing them into his brain, but with a molten iron instead of ink. The wolf and viper's battle calls. The golden warrior's power falls. Two races well beyond their date shall bend at last to wills of fate. A final rise of doom decide. The vital word of one does hide. The words pounded in his head again and again, seeping the way into his very soul. Lycos gritted his teeth with agony, but the pain's intensity just grew worse and worse, and wham! He slammed to the ground, his eyes shooting open at once. His heart beat painfully fast, and his head spun slightly, as if he just banged it on the ground. Of course, Lycos fought a bemused smile as he pushed himself into a squatting position. He'd fallen out of bed after the nightmare. How very clever. He couldn't help but grin at his own stupidity. Wiping the cold sweat from his brow, Lycos stretched out on his makeshift bed again. It wasn't really a bed, just a stone ledge covered with animal hides. To most people, it would have been way too uncomfortable, 
but he and his best friend Hector had long since grown used to it. Hector was four years older than Laukos, a tall, sturdy warrior with short hair and steady, brown eyes, and he was currently asleep. Good, Laukos didn't want to wake him in the middle of the night simply because he'd had a dream. They'd met a long time ago and shortly after withdrawn into the cave, the roof of which Laukos was now staring at. And that, of course, was read by Harry Stottle. Thank you, Harry. Um, so I didn't, I didn't tell you about the author, did I? Who jumped in so fast there? Um, let me tell, tell you about Katerina. Uh, born in Munich, grew up bilingually in Switzerland, England, and the Black Forest. Um, now studying in Spain. From a very young age, my two defining traits have been my thirst for knowledge and my love for stories. Listening to them being told when I was young, reading them myself when I was a little older, and finally coming to tell my own. How very nicely put. For me, books are something magical, a gateway into other worlds. Yeah, it's fantasy. It's wonderful. That's, that's one of the main reasons we read. Um, worlds that are often very like the ones in my own head. I always wanted to write, but I also enjoyed road cycling, playing football, exploring historical sites. And my current course of study is business administration. Yet, my biggest dream is to publish a book, taking others on that magical journey to a different world, which, of course, Aristotle did brilliantly. Kind of cut to you straight away, Chris. First reactions. I, I loved the story. Like I, the story gripped me from beginning to end. I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, I liked the fact that we got a really great description of the boy of Lycos. Just I could visualize him 100%. I could see him 100% from top to bottom. Uh, and then connecting the blurb to the actual story, like the, the whole thing being a nightmare. Like they showed you right from the beginning that this is where we're at and him falling out of bed and it becomes a big nightmare. So I, I thought that the, the author connected those two very well. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, it was good. I, I, would, I would read on. I would read on. It's got me That's curious. That's exactly what we want. Let's see what Bev thought. Uh, would, you, would you read on, Bev? Um, I'd read on, but I didn't like it as much as Chris. Okay, why? I, well, firstly, I found the... I was, I found some things confusing. So he's having a dream, but it's not written about as if it's from inside his head, mm -hmm. because you don't have a dream and you go over there is somebody floating above the corpses and he's got his tanned legs and he's wearing sandals. It's like, you don't think that about yourself in your own dream. So it's like, who's telling this and who are they telling it to? And, and so it was like, uh, I found the tenses sometimes a bit strange. Okay. Uh, um, and again, it was, I didn't like the repetition of the rhyme, but I did like very much the idea of it. I hmm. love things that are about the Azir. And, and so the title with Fire and Ice, which is such a big thing for George Martin and the Game of Thrones stuff. Yes. I thought you've You've got a lot to choose from with Greek gods and with the Aesir. You, you can come up with something less derivative and better than that. Yeah, you can come um, up with the two oh, Rolls-Royce, Rolls George Rolls-Royce, Martin. Absolutely. It did, it did the trick yeah. you had, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so I would read on, but I, I would have liked to have started with the boy first so okay. that I could care about the horror in the dream because it, it, it just felt very abstract. Okay. Okay, so Annie's pointed out 
is this why Greece is all the rage right now, isn't it? It is actually, has been for several years now. Um, Pamela Joe, but, but it was even busier than the other examples today. I lost track of what was supposed to be happening and in the end didn't care. Okay, so maybe slightly too vitamin packed there. Uh, very nice voice though, uh, Pamela Joe goes on to say, very nice for the craft is strong here with this one. And uh, Annie says, is this Hector the Hector? Oh, I've got a strong feeling it is actually, I think it is, yeah. And uh, RK says, this starts with one weather, two a dream, three repetition of a poem, ding. It has atmosphere, but I get rid of those, uh, those three things. Okay, so let's see what numbers Bev's just given. And she has not given any numbers. Are you going to be, do- are yep. you going to be voting today? You have done. There Good. Is. There it is. All right. Let's come back in a moment and see if they are actually working. Let's see if Chris's numbers have come in. They haven't. Okay. Have you voted, actually, Chris? Yes. I bet. Yeah, you have. Okay. I have. Oh, they've, ju- they've just come in. Yes, the electrons are flowing slowly today. Yours have just come in. I voted. Let's see what the overall numbers are looking like. 56, Katarina. You kind of divided people a bit there. I'm mostly on Chris's side of that, but I can see... That the genius room comments, and if you are watching the recording, actually, Catherine, then just freeze frame and I'll go through everything everyone said because it's gold dust. It's you know, it's it's literal sort of real time market research. So taking everything everyone's saying there, heaven's sake, please. That's one of the great features of pop ups. And we've got a comment here from Zero on YouTube. Start with the corpses rather than the weather. Yeah, weather. It's a bit British, isn't it? A tiny detail, and then go macro, maybe. Yeah, good, good, good. So now we are. At that crunch time of the show, we'll just have one more submission and then we'll find out who the winner is. And here we are. It's from John, John Farone. Artifacts of Landon. Return of the Swordmaster. It's a long title. Fantasy with a blend of epic, portal, and heroic, and quest. And anything else? No, that's fine. Good, thank you. And there's a QR code there too, so we're going to all uh, scan that and zoom straight off to John's website. Meanwhile, I'll read the blurb. Meet Creme Connolly, a high school graduate from Chicago, needing to do something different with his life. Little does he know that he's a bloodline descendant of a special family from a parallel world called Landon, a world that needs him to return. When he finds a sword that allows him to enter Langdon, he discovers that not only is he the bridge between the two worlds, but he must embark upon a quest to help others find their artifacts on Earth so together they can save their world. But like geocaching, isn't it, really? Interesting combination, geocaching and fantasy. Like it. Yeah, I like that. I can see that working. Uh, let me tell everyone about you, John. I write because I long to be on an epic quest. That's what you're writing about. And I want to offer hope and inspiration to others who have this same longing. I believe our world today needs heroes and heroines as role models who persevere because they feel a calling to try and have the courage and integrity to keep trying in the face of fear and great evil. 
As a business and organizational consultant in the U.S., I specialize in assisting organizations to build their capacity. I primarily help leaders navigate their human dynamics, and this particular focus finds its way into my writing subtle ways. I'm married and have four children. Oh, and I've been a dungeon master for 40 years. That's good qualification. I would love to be able to tell you who's going to give you the reading. I don't know. It's going to be as much an excitement for me as it is for you. Artifacts of Landon, Return of the Swordmaster, by John, read by Robert. Chapter 1. The Teen Who Could Meditate. The glow from the fire of the burning goblin bodies was fading the further they marched away from it, and was soon no longer visible amidst the thick fog. The dwarves and Krem made their way along the edge of the woods, following a level path that skirted the hillside just above the tree line. The dwarves were silent and steady, and Krem tried his best to avoid making noise, as well as to keep up. They were battle-weary, and some were assisting their wounded brothers, but the dwarves moved at a surprisingly quick and steady rate. The occasional head-turn from one of his bearded companions let Krem know that he was not impressing them much with his stealth. The fog made it difficult to see ahead, and when the path suddenly turned to the left, and sprang into the forest between two trees that formed a low arch with their branches. It caught Krem by surprise, and he wanted to hesitate, but he didn't fear of being left behind by the quickly marching dwarves. And if the night and fog seemed dark, the forest, now, was an expanse of blackness that made Krem feel like he had walked through a veil and somehow stepped into black velvet. He began stumbling on roots, and after falling forward into the dwarf just ahead of him, he decided enough was enough, and drew his sword from his side, and whispered, Lictine. The sleek blade began to emit a soft blue glow that allowed Krem to see the path a few feet in front of him. The dwarves moved at a steady pace, that made Krem hurry every few steps to keep up. He tried taking longer strides, but that made him fall behind faster, when it came down to it, he just had to quicken his steps. Although he had never really been pushed to his physical limits, he knew he possessed an uncannily high level of endurance that emanated from a hidden recess deep within him, an intrinsic quality that often surprised him. He had learned to draw strength from it through meditation, and as he hurried along with the dwarves, he searched for that resource deep within him. But the marching continued, and the shock of the entire situation was taking a mental toll on him. Regardless of his strong endurance, Krem was out of shape, and he knew it. He was never was much of a sports jock in school, although he was very athletic. He had a strong and wiry physique, excellent coordination, and an intuitive feel for his body's capabilities. He just hadn't played sports much. It wasn't for the lack of interest that he avoided organised sports. In fact, he often tried to fit in on the playground or in less formal sports situations like pick-up basketball. He marvelled at what some of the other kids could do with the basketball. As he hurried along with the dwarves, his mind wandered back to a playground memory from when he was 14. We've got crap, so we get the ball first, Kurt said. He held out his hand, palm up, his gaze on Bruce who stood facing him, sizing up the teams. Come on, Brucey, you know it's fair. Give me the ball. Bruce shook the shaggy brown bangs out of his eyes glanced over at Krem, the kid they called Crap, 
and then back at Kurt. Yeah, all right. He let the basketball drop and bounce towards Kurt and then turned towards the rest of his team and called them in to talk about who they were going to guard. Kurt grabbed the ball and turned to do the same with his guys. Krem was tr still trying to pull his sweatpants down and over his shoes. Both feet were stuck and soon he was sitting on the blacktop taking his shoes off to free himself. He looked at Kurt and the other guys who were all staring back at him, hands on their hips. Garrett looked sideways to Kurt then back at Krem who was finally putting his shoes back on and then asked, Who's he going to cover? Billy's not that quick and he's not so tall so Krem can stick on him. Should make it a four on four game, replied Kurt. Krem stood up, tossed his sweatpants over to the side and then jogged towards the guys. They broke their huddle and Kurt starting dribbling the balls. They advanced up the court to Bruce's team. Krem, you've... Oh, there we go. So, hundred words exactly. Actually, you know, you can you can just push it a little bit. You know, end the sentence. Actually, we're not going to we're not going to refuse a submission on the basis that it's seven hundred and ten words. Um, let's go and look at the genius room. Lots and lots of good things there. Um, opening with burning bodies. Said Lex, bold. And Lex also said, so tired of this. Every time I gather more mystical artifacts from my collection, some upstart. Teens from another dimension shows up to steal them back. Uh, James says, good blurb. Blurb sounds portal. It does sound a bit, actually. Just call it portal fantasies, Annie. Yeah. Um, and James, long title. But if it's a series, I'm not wild about the title. I think it could be sharpened up a lot. Um, I don't think it's distinctive enough, actually. Uh, nice blurb, Annie. Uh, missing stakes. Um, what happens to him if he doesn't go on the quest? And Pamela Joe says, blurbs work best when the emotions you want the reader to feel are condensed down to fit into those few lines. Yeah. Great first line. And then you've got more uh, stream of conscious reaction. This is the beauty and the genius of the genius room. Started strong then. Too much telling, says James, as we got into it. What's happening here? I'm lost, says Johnny. Not super engaged. Echoes, Mel, I think. Sort of trudging along. On our case, says dwarfs to basketball. That's a big shift. What did you think, Chris? Uh, yeah, there was a lot going on with this one. Uh, more, than yeah. I could, more than I can actually keep up with. Um, the, the title, I didn't like the title simply because it sounds like a, it's called, you know, it says The Return of the Swordmaster. Like, is he returning from what? So I didn't, I the title sounds too much like a sequel to me. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, we've got this thing with the multiple worlds and like who belongs in which world and why, what's the significance of the artifacts? I couldn't really grasp on that. Like, why these artifacts were so like world shifting significant mm. um, in the blurb. And then also, I guess it felt very like Lord of, the, Lord of the Rings meets Harry Potter meets Basketball Diaries. Yes. <laughs> well, it sounds commercial to me. Here's, here's 10 million quid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it kind of starts off with Burning Goblins. We have this march and we have this basketball scene. And so I, I, couldn't, I couldn't put it all together. I really couldn't pull it all together. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot going on there, actually. Um, but I, I dwarves, I mean, yeah, I mean, it pushed quite a few of the right buttons for me, but maybe I'm just a bit of an old uh, Lord of the Rings fan, really. Bav, good yeah. news? Um, really hated the title, I'm afraid. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of geography, wasn't there? I mean, there was a yeah. lot of trees and rocks and weather and branches and twigs and ground and just not enough actually happening yes. I, I, I wanted more 
And then just as I thought maybe we were going to start to get some more, we're suddenly in a basketball game. And the thing is, the two did not connect. There, was, there wasn't a parallel that made it make sense for me. And it, it's not that either was particularly bad, but it just didn't feel like joined up writing in the way that I wanted. And I liked being with the dwarves. At least they were interesting. Mm, mm. More, more. But I mean, even in the basketball game, all that happened is he took his trousers off. Well, that's something. <laughs> really just it doesn't happen in every game. They usually pulled off, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So what advice can we give here? Because obviously this is a labour of love for John. And, you know, you, you could tell from his, his bio that... He's start, I write because I long to be on an epic quest. I mean, what, what, have we got any advice here we can offer him? Because, he, he, you know, his heart's in the right place here. Best advice, please, guys. Start in the real world. I think start in the real world. Hmm. Yeah, we got we to start there. I think that's the number one thing for me. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's absolutely spot on, actually. And then take us through the journey. Take us through the journey. Yeah. See how, how it evolves. Um, yeah. Okay, well, we got the numbers in. Let's cross, cross our fingers, John, and see how they add up. Uh, you got a 48. You got a 48. Oh, I wish it was more than that, but numbers don't lie. You got a 48 there. And I, I think a lot of that, well, some of the numbering at least, some of the scoring could have been improved with a much stronger title, more distinct title. You need to think about that. And you also, let's just cut back to the genius room for final, final, final thoughts. Uh, you also need to read, learn, and inwardly digest what the geniuses are saying because you're just getting it straight. It's instant market research. You're getting it straight in real time as it happens. So that means, I think, doesn't it? We've got a winner. Yes, we absolutely do have a winner. And it's this. How about that? literature, Scotland's rich historical and mythical past. We like that. We like that a lot. And you won. Well done, Richard. Off to an absolutely shining start uh, this month. Congratulations to that. It feels strong and commercial to me. I, I think there's a lot of potential in that. Um, and it's, uh, despite my best efforts at blundering and cocking things up, it's not been a bad show. Thank you very much for being with me live for the past 60 minutes or so. Thank you so much to Chris Jones making kind of an unscheduled appearance. He will be back with us again in, in a few weeks' time. ChrisJonesInc.com if you want to follow through with him. And why not? Thank you, Bev, too. You've heard her. Now you see and of course Emily all our narrators and Kate and Rachel for all the uh, booking genius that you do I've had a good time I hope you have and I do hope that we'll meet again at the same time next week hit it Ready? Ready.